Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. Conflict. We all experience it, whether it's the fuss that breaks out about the Sunday morning coffee rotor in church, the choice of worship songs in the service, or, heaven help us, the decision to change the pews into chairs, especially if the chairs are bright orange plastic chairs. When pews are involved, the little fuss has the potential to morph into World War III. Just this week, I learned that a new play that made a huge impact at the 2019 Edinburgh Fringe is moving to London's West End, and it's all about conflict, conflict that simmered in an intriguing setting, the set of the filming of a movie. The play, which is called The Shark is Broken, offers a glimpse at the tense conflict-laced relationship between the three stars of Steven Spielberg's 1975 film, Jaws. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Jaws, here's a really quick overview. A man-eating shark is engaging in a feeding frenzy in the waters surrounding Beachtown Amity Island. Police chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, tries to close the beach after the shark kills several swimmers, but a local mayor insists on keeping it open because the economy depends on it. Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, is brought in to help assess what kind of shark it is and how much danger it poses. Meanwhile, a slightly unhinged local fisherman named Quint, played by Robert Shaw, offers to catch and kill it for $10,000. The film was very costly to make. It ran over schedule, and the mechanical sharks that they were using frequently broke down, something which ultimately inspired the play's title. Those delays meant that the three principal actors were often sitting around, waiting for filming to resume, and it was during those long pauses that the conflict broke out. The intense working conditions created what Spielberg later referred to as the Great Shaw-Dreyfus feud. The two of them just didn't see eye to eye, and one of them would often taunt the other between takes. Perhaps we find ourselves in situations of conflict right now. Talk about intense working conditions. We've been in intense living conditions for the last 18 months, getting frustrated, lining up for petrol, worrying about jobs and jabs and toilet rolls, and more seriously, the health of loved ones, dealing with incredible grief. It's been a pressure cooker. And when there's pressure, there's conflict. So let's reflect together for a while, because tonight it's Lucas on Conflict here on Premier Christian Radio. Settling down for a treat, breakfast in a rather posh restaurant, we soaked up the ambience of the place. There was a gorgeous old fireplace, logs smouldering in it, emitting that glorious smell of charred wood. The walls were bedecked with silk wallpaper, and waistcoated waiters dashed here and there with platefuls of steaming food lovely. Gentle background music, canned but well-chosen, complemented the sedate atmosphere. 
But then suddenly everything changed. The music shifted into a twinkly rendition of Bar Bar Black Sheep, which played through in about 20 seconds and then repeated and repeated again and incredibly again. Ten minutes later, having heard the question to the aforementioned black sheep concerning whether or not it had any wool, and discovering once again that indeed wool was plenteous, three bags full in fact, we felt restless, agitated. Surely the CD or MP3 player had got stuck. Other diners were frowning following the great British tradition of noticing that something was up, but not actually saying anything about it so as not to cause a fuss but then looking forward to the opportunity of grumbling about it later on. Ten minutes later, the sheepish repetition was beginning to feel like a musical version of the Japanese water torture, so I decided to raise the issue with a passing waiter. Excuse me, can I just ask, what's going on with the music? He tilted his head to one side, the strange posture of one who wants to communicate that they are listening intently, and agreed, yes sir, that is odd, I'll check. Off he went and restarted the player, only now there were two tracks playing simultaneously, a cacophonic collision between Bach and those irritating sheep. Other diners, emboldened by my inquiry of the waiter, moved into stage one of British complaining, which involves rolling one's eyes and sighing. The next stage would be full-on huffing and puffing, but we were not quite there yet. The waiter returned to our table, looking bewildered but it was then that the awful, hideous moment came, and the memory of it makes me cringe, even as I talk about it here. The waiter pointed down to the floor to a handbag owned by one of our little group. That music, sir, it's coming from that bag. Your bag, he cried triumphantly, with the glee normally associated with a detective who has cracked a difficult whodunit case. And indeed, the music was emanating from that bag. Somehow a mobile phone had clicked onto a game app for small children, which was playing Bar Bar Black Sheep over and over and over again, and suddenly the eye-rolling and sighing around the restaurant stopped to be replaced by chilly glares in our direction. I could feel the frostiness. I had complained, but we were the source of the irritation. Frustrated by the repetition, we were blissfully unaware that we were the ones to blame. Guilty as charged, my lord. In telling a story that's reminiscent of Monty Python, Jesus painted a picture of a hapless chap who runs around with a magnifying glass, mustard keen to identify specks of sawdust in the eyes of others, but all along oblivious to the whacking great plank that sticks out from his own head. Apparently, this log in Jesus' day would have been the main support for a house, which would have made it about 12 metres long a significant protrusion. This farcical scene is frequently played out, especially in churches, fault-finding souls eager to catch people doing or believing something that is suspect patrol around searching for someone or something to correct. Sometimes they get together to form squadrons. When they find something that appears to be amiss, they pounce on it with unseemly joy, thrilled by yet another opportunity to highlight a problem or see others fail, and that's when the conflict really breaks out. It seems peculiar, this idea of deriving pleasure from others' misfortune or downfall, 
But sometimes we are thrilled when others stumble, perhaps because we've simmered with envy at their success, or we justify being glad at their stumbling by appealing to a sense of justice. It's only right that they were exposed. They got what they deserved. But some psychologists believe that we're more likely to pop open a cork of celebration when others fail when we dehumanize them, viewing them as objects of scrutiny rather than real flesh and blood human beings much loved by God. We take a pathological view, seeing them as exhibits rather than people. All of this creates the fuel for the fires of conflict. And ironically, when we do this, our unkind, cruel attitudes might be far worse than the issue that we're determined to correct. But we can remain blissfully unaware of that. Hobbies can provide distraction. And so perhaps some take up the hobby of fault-finding in order to spare themselves the demanding discomfort of self-discovery. Peering at others through a magnifying glass is just so much easier than staring at ourselves in a mirror. If we're in the habit of locating sawdust specks, perhaps it's time for us to focus more on what we're often blind to, our own faults and foibles. Meanwhile, back at the breakfast, that sheepish serenade was hastily silenced and calm was restored, but I still felt the need to depart in haste because the glares continued and conflict could have been on the horizon. Nobody likes a picky complainer. I think a rather large apology to the staff is required, boomed a chap at the next table, and I complied, begging forgiveness from the grinning waiters. Who knows, if we've been plank-spouting, speck-hunting, picky people, it might be that we are the cause of some grief. So perhaps in our lives, a rather large apology is required somewhere too. It happened when I was travelling by train to London. I decided to make the best use of time and reflect and write. Tiny fold-down tables are provided for the parking laptops, tables that are meant to be shared, hence the source of my irritation and the danger of some conflict. The man sitting opposite me was taking about 60% of the table space, leaving just about 40%, make that 37.25% because I was really tempted to measure, leaving that for me. I was quietly outraged, but there was more because then that brazen table hogger had placed a steaming hot cup of coffee on the table as well, taking up yet more space. I calculate about 72.97% and also risking third degree burns to yours truly if the juddering train should topple it. Now I was actually planning for that toppling, mentally rehearsing a withering speech should I end up being scalded. I was actually being prophetically offended, planning a retort should something happen that was probably unlikely. I'm disgusted to admit that I was almost eager for the opportunity to complain, to have a moment of conflict, even if it involved minor burns. But I'm not alone in my bristling, because it seems to me that increasingly we are a culture that has perfected the art of being offended. Ironically, surely our verbosity is perhaps only matched by our fragility. Gary Lineker, he of football and crisp fame, made a casual comment some years ago about his bald co-presenters, who found it amusing, only to discover that complaints were made, which is staggering. And I say that as one with a hairstyle that is a shrinking peninsula. 
And then an American TV host discovered that young Prince George had taken up ballet and suggested that his interest in dance might not last long, which triggered outrage amongst ballet lovers everywhere. They demanded an apology and suggested that she was guilty of bullying. Opinions may differ about the wisdom of her comment, but I think that those who suggest that we're becoming a snowflake society where everyone is perpetually offended, which so often leads to a sense of conflict, they might actually have a point. Banter is part of our culture, especially in the realm of comedy. And while there are some comedians who take no thought for people who genuinely suffer, the reality is that some people live their entire lives permanently camped on the brink of being offended. They probably got upset with the midwife who delivered them, irritated by entering the world only to begin life with having their bottom smacked. Conflict, for them, began early. Being offended can be weaponized. It can be used as a nifty ruse. Instead of stamping our feet and huffing and puffing with childish petulance, we employ the trembling bottom lip routine and cry that we've been offended. And then when others dash to appease us, we become the victor while disguising ourselves as the aggrieved victim. And then Christians have an extra weapon that can upgrade a pop gun of offense into the relational equivalent of something nuclear, God. Upset at the sermon, worship song, service time, pure arrangement, not being included in that flower rota. If you love being offended, join a church because there's no shortage of issues that can irritate. We insist that our preference or opinion mirrors God's view on the matter. The Lord of the cosmos is called as a witness for our prosecution. Back on that train, that chap who was sitting opposite me was in serious danger now. He'd finished his coffee so I was denied the opportunity to be scalded and thus be scalding. But then he was inching his laptop yet further into my already minuscule table territory. Helpfully, I decided to get over it, not worry, and conflict was avoided. And perhaps somewhere in the distance, angels were sighing with relief. Conflict, that's been our theme. Surely, one way to avoid ongoing conflict in our lives is to realize that compared with our irritations, there are others around the world who face real heartbreaking challenges and difficulties. It's true to say that we live with first world problems. When we're tempted to go into emotional meltdown about something trivial, we should stop and consider that perhaps it's not really such a big deal and pray for those around the world who really face real difficulties, replacing some prayer for the conflict. We could do worse. See you next time. Lucas on Life.